Okay, the parsha of Kisavo <coughs> begins with the mitzvah of Bikurim, as we know. <coughs> and additionally, accompanying the actual bringing of the Bikurim is a passage that is known as Mikra Bikurim. <coughs> the, the accompanying passage is in the opening Psukim, Aramia Vedavi, Vayered Mitzrayma. We are familiar with these Sukim from Seder night, uh, probably more recently than from bringing Bikurim, I, I think the only thing you need to get used to when you hear in the weekly Parsha is hearing the Psukim read all in a row, because on Seder night we um, dissect them into small pieces and uh, discuss them word by word or phrase by phrase. And in the Parsha we have them all together. And I want to actually focus on the three words, Arami Ovedavi. Let's just see those words in context. It's in the beginning of the Parsha Perik, Kafvav Pasuk He. So you've brought your Bikurim, you're in the Beis Hamikdash, and Va'anisa Va'amarta, you shall respond or raise your voice and say, Lefnei Hashem Anokecha, Arami Ovedavi, Vayered Mitzrayma. Arami Ovedavi, and literally the rest is history. Now, <clears throat> What is the meaning of the words Arami Oved Avi? Who's the Arami and who's the Avi? Well, if you look in Rashi, Rashi explains that Arami Oved Avi, the Arami is destroying my father. Lavan, Bikesh Laakor Esakol. Well known words from Haggadah Shal Pesach. Lavan, Bikesh Laakor Esakol. Lavan is the Aramean, and he is trying to destroy my father, Yaakov. That's Rashi's explanation. As we mentioned, it's also in Haggadah Shal Pesach, and Haggadah Shal Pesach is from, these are expositions of Chazal. And this is the explanation in the Sifrei from Chazal on our Pasuk, and even Unculus. In his translation, and Unculus is normally a literal word-for-word uh, translation, very close. Unculus translates, Lavan Arama'a Ba'ala Yas'aba. Lavan the Aramean tried to destroy Yaakov. So that, as far as Unculus is concerned, is the appropriate translation of the words Arami Oveid Avi. Now, the matter does not rest there. Because one of the Rishonim has very strong feelings about this matter. And that is the Ibn Ezra. As we know, there are certain Rishonim, they're called Ba'alei HaPshat. That is to say that their focus is exclusively on Pshat. And foremost amongst them, of course, is the Ibn Ezra himself. Says Ibn Ezra, if you wish to explain the words Aramea Vitavi as meaning that Lavan is trying to destroy Yaakov, you can say that as a drash. You can present that as a drash explanation. The Ibn Ezra has no problem with drash. It just isn't pshat. The two go together, but they're not the same thing. But you cannot say that that is the pshat in these words, that it refers to Lavan, for a very simple reason. The word oveid is intransitive. That is to say, it refers to the thing itself, not acting on something else. The thing itself is lost. 
Like Hashavas Aveda. If something is Oved, that means whatever you're talking about, or whoever you're talking about, are themselves lost. If it were to be transitive, that is to say, acting on someone else, so the word wouldn't be Oved, but rather Me'abed, like we say with regards to Haman's plans. Bikesh Lashmid, Laharog, that's when you want to lose the other person, in other words, to destroy them. And therefore, says the Ibn Ezra, because the word Oved is intransitive, it means whoever we're talking about was themselves lost, not trying to destroy someone else. Therefore, I say, says Ibn Ezra, that the pshat of the words Arami Avedavi, it's all one person. It's not an Arami who's trying to kill Avi. It's all one person, meaning my father was an Arami Oved. Or to put it slightly differently, an Arami Oved was my father. And it's referring to Yaakov. And it calls him Oved because he had difficulties in Aram when he lived with Lavan. He came there with nothing, and he was treated very badly. And the point is, we start from our humble origins when my father Yaakov was an Arami Oved, and look where we are today in Eretz Yisrael, bringing Bikurim. This, therefore, is Ibn Ezra's understanding of Arami Avedavi. Very different than Rashi and Unculus and so on and so forth. Again, to be clear, there are not two people, one called the Arami, who's trying to destroy the other one called Avi. It all describes the one person. Avi, my father, was an Arami Oved. And why is he called an Arami? Because we're talking about his experiences in Aram. That's Ibn Ezra's Pshat presentation. Now, let us not forget, Rashi also, in principle, seeks to present the Pshat. And Rashi, in his Pshat commentary, did explain, like the Haggadah, that it's love on trying to destroy Yaakov. So Ibn Ezra is effectively uh, attacking that as well. Not, that, not, not personally, I don't know if he had exposure to Rashi's commentary, but, but Rashi does see this as Pshat, that it's love on trying to kill Yaakov. And as we also know, if you wish to ask a, a, raise a problem with Rashi's commentary, there are a number of people that you're going to need to get past. They are Rashi's commentators, and they will have what to say. They stand uh, by Rashi's side and explain his position. And the one who steps in to respond to the Ibn Ezra here is none other than the Maharal in the Gur Aryeh. And the Maharal, it's fair to say, on this occasion, responds to the Ibn Ezra and defends Rashi vigorously, if not vehemently. He feels that the Ibn Ezra's approach is, is very incorrect. And he begins by saying, Ibn Ezra, you suggest this as the alternative, again, that Yaakov was the Arami Oved? Whatever issues you, you may have with, with the Haggadah's approach, your approach is infinitely worse for a simple reason. There is no way that Yaakov would ever be referred to in the Torah as an Arami. As an Aramean. Meaning, when do we refer to a person by place? 
either says Maharal if he if he's from that place or if he moves there permanently. I mean, those are grounds for referring to him as being of that place. He comes from there, or that's where he lived. Says Maharal, Yaakov doesn't come from Aram, and he didn't settle there permanently. In Lovangarti, he's there for a while, but not permanently. There is no stretch of the imagination, says Maharal, by which the Torah would ever refer to Yaakov with the term Arami. And therefore, says Maharal, whatever issues you have with saying that it's Lavan, it's for sure not Yaakov. That's first things. Best defense is a good offense. His first response defending Yaakov is, is to attack the Ibn Ezra. Pardon me, defending Rashi is to, to attack Ibn Ezra. But what about the explanation that Rashi does give? What about Ibn Ezra's issue that Oved is intransitive? Says Maharal, something which is quite sensational. We say, Lovan bikesh lakarasakol. Lovan tried to destroy everyone. The Pasuk doesn't say he tried to do anything. The Pasuk talks about him doing something. It doesn't say, Arami bikesh. It says, Arami ovedavi, which means whatever he did, he did it. Why? Rashi himself explains. Because he intended to do it, the Pasuk accredits him, quote-unquote, or rates him on a scale of evil as if he actually did. That's why it's expressed as, as a done act. However, the reality is, he didn't do it. So we have a blended situation here, if which we would synopsize, we would say, he tried to destroy Yaakov, but he didn't succeed. But he's considered as if he did it, even though he didn't. How do you put all of that together in one phrase? The answer, says Maharal, is take the word ma'abed, which is transitive, and make it intransitive. Thus denoting that as much as we describe him as having done something, he didn't succeed. He was never able to destroy Yaakov. He lost in the end. And that's why it's written as Oved, to give you this contemporaneous or simultaneous message of something that he tried to do but wasn't successful but is considered as if he did you put that all together you have to express it as something that he did but also show that he did not succeed Ma'abed becomes uh, sterilized or tamed to the word Ovet so we see there are strong feelings on this matter. And so far we have seen two explanations of the words Aramia Vedavi, just to keep stock of where we are. The Haggadah says it's Lavan trying to destroy Yaakov. Ibn Ezra says Yaakov himself was a lost Aramean. And in case we're wondering, are there any other possible interpretations of this phrase? We should wonder no longer. There is one more. And that comes from another of the Baale Hapshat, the Rashbam. Rashbam is Rashi's grandson. You think that means he agrees with Rashi and everything that Rashi says in his commentary on the Torah? No, he does not. One would have liked to have been there at the Shabbos table. You have these two Rishonim and they have a lot of pitched machlokes in between them. But the Rashbam, Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, brother of Rabbi Nutam, these two illustrious grandsons of Rashi, the Rashbam says, we now need to clear the third half of our brains for the third perush. Arami of Adavi, my father Avram, 
was an Aramio fade. How was Avram a, 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 a lost Aramean? Says Rashbam, Oved means lost in the sense of wandering around. He wandered from place to place, which he did. He went from Orkastim and then to Choron and then to Israel, Teretz Canaan, and then to Mitzrayim and then back and then Teretz Plishtim. So he was, in a sense, it's yet our, our humble beginnings. But it's Avram who's the, who's the Arami Oved. And we can appreciate that on a Pshat level, Rashbam is very closely aligned with Ibn Ezra. In other words, Oved is, the Arami is the one who's Oved Avi. It's the father is the lost. It's just the father is not Yaakov. It's Avram. And moreover, Rashbam's explanation would be immune to the Maharal's attack on Ibn Ezra. Because the Maharal says, how can you say that Arami of Eid is Yaakov? Yaakov is a lost Arami. How could the Torah call him an Arami? He's not an Arami. He's an Ivri. He's not from Aram. He didn't settle there permanently. But Avram is from Aram. So Avram can be called Arami and Arami Oved. And thus we have before us these three explanations of the very familiar words to us, Arami Oved Avi. One explanation per word. Okay. I'd like to add another layer to this discussion. And it comes from the Vilna Gaon. We are familiar with the expression Maase Ovos Simon Laboni. The deeds of the forefathers, we call them a sign for the children. They're more than a sign for the children. Uh, as we always comment when we mention this idea, Maase Ovos Simon Labonim, because a sign just points you in the right direction, but it doesn't help you get there. It just gives you information. But the experience of the forefathers prepared the way they facilitated and allowed for the then national experiences of their descendants. So it's more than a siman. Either way, says the Vilna Gaon, our experiences in Egypt as a nation were pre-experienced on a Masa Ovos level. By whom? By Yaakov. Yaakov's experiences with Lavan were the Masa Ovos for our experiences then in Egypt. What's the parallel? What are the, what are the connections? What are the harbingers? Well, <clears throat> firstly, says the Vilna Gaon, when he comes there with nothing, he works day and night for Lavan, just as we were enslaved to Paro. He leaves Baruch right? In the course of time, he, he amasses great uh, assets and leaves Baruch And what's also very interesting is, says the Vilna Gaon, over the course of, how much time did Yaakov escape from Lavan? Over the course of seven days. Isn't that right? In Parshas Vayetze, he, he, he travels for three days, and then it takes them three days to tell Lavan, and then Lavan catches up with him on the seventh day. That is exactly the timeline of our departure from Egypt, where we said we're going for three days, but we kept going. It took them three days to go back, and Paro and his army catch up with us on day seven. So if you want to find the Maase Ovos 
for our experiences in Mitzrayim, you will find it, says Vilna Gaon, with Yaakov's experiences with Lavan. And for this reason, says Vilna Gaon, and we're about to see something in Parshanut, I do not think anything else exists like this in the whole of Chumash. Says the Vilna Gaon, that is why our, our presentation or our recap of our history, when we bring Bikurim, starts with the words, Arami Oved Avi. And we then proceed to talk about our experiences in Mitzrayim. Arami Oved Avi Vayered Mitzrayim. We know those words so well. But if you never think about it, they do not seem to be connected to each other. They read like they're a progression that A led to B. But that's not true. Arami Oved Avi. Lavan tried to kill Yaakov. Then what happened? Yaakov went down to Mitzrayim. That, there's information missing there. There's a lot of pieces in the middle. When you put those two things together as if A led directly to B, that's, that is a, a, an incomplete picture. Because in reality, the more accurate historical way to uh, present events is... Aramia Avedavi, Lavan tried to kill Yaakov, but he was unsuccessful. And Yaakov then went down, went back to Eretz Canaan and lived there for a while. And then the brothers grew up and there was trouble between them. And then Yosef had his dreams and there was more trouble. And then they sold Yosef and then they didn't hear from him for a while. And then there was a famine in the land and Yosef is the second in command. And then Vayered Mitzrayim. Yaakov went down to Mitzrayim. But that's about 10 pieces in the middle that have just gone missing. So how can... How can we talk about Lavan with Yaakov and then go straight to Yaakov going down to Mitzrayim as if it's part one and part two of the story? There's a lot of pieces in between. But says the Vilna Gaon, no, that's not what's happening. Aramio Vedavi opens our presentation because it's the Masa Avos for the whole thing. Lavan trying to destroy Yaakov, the way that he's persecuting Yaakov, it's not part one of the story followed by part two. It's all of the story on a Masa Avos pre-experiencing level. And then Vayered Mitzrayim is the beginning of the story on a Simon Labanim level as we, our experiences in Mitzrayim actually began to transpire. And that syntactically, I think, is absolutely unique. That you have these two phrases, but they don't relate to each other as episode one and episode two. The first phrase is all episodes, as per Masa Avos, and then phrase two and onwards is all the episodes again in Simon Labanim. That is definitely one for the books. And what better book to be one for? Now, <clears throat> thus far, uh, we've quoted from the Vilna Gaon, but I feel there's more to say because um, I have an issue, quote unquote, with this explanation of the Vilna Gaon. Obviously, it's not an issue, but I need to uh, air it and, because I think it will bring us deeper into what he means to say. Here's the Vilna Gaon saying, there's always Masa Avos. Whenever you have national experiences, it's always pre-experienced by the Avos. And what was the Masa Avos for our Egyptian exile and all of that? It was Yaakov with Lavan. There's just one problem. Chazal in the Medrash have already presented 
a different Masa Ovos for our Egypt experience, and that is none other than Avram Avinu. In fact, the very source of the concept of Masa, Masa Ovos Simen Labonim is stated in connection with Avram going down to Egypt. The Medrash says there was a famine in the land and Avram went down to Egypt and the Medrash comments, you will find that whatever happens to the fathers happens to the sons. And it enumerates many parallels between Avram's Egypt experience and our Egypt experience. He went down because there was a famine in the land. Sorrow was taken, says the Medrash. Just like the Egyptians wanted to Get rid of the males, and keep the females. Sarah was taken to Parah. Parah was punished with plagues. That's Masa Ovis for the plagues in Mitzrayim. And Avram again leaves Beruchush Gadol as, as we know that he did. So we're in a very, I would say, awkward situation. Because the Vilna Gaon is looking to provide for us the Masa Avos for our Egypt experience, but unfortunately, or fortunately, we already have one. And there's no way that the Vilna Gaon doesn't know that. Firstly, because he's the Vilna Gaon. Secondly, because that discussion is the source of the concept of Masa Avos, Simon Labonim. And by the way, firstly is better. So, what are we to make of all of this? It appears that what the Vilna Gaon is saying is that in this instance, the national experiences of our exile and redemption from Egypt, our first national experience, our seminal, formative national experience, was so massive, it was the product of not just one Masa Avos, but two. It was a collaborative input on the part both of Avram and of Yaakov. Not Yitzhak, by the way. Yitzhak never set foot outside the land of Israel. But Avram and Yaakov together. In this instance, when we say Masa Ovos Simon Labonim, we mean Ovos literally. You had two Ovos here working together to provide Simon Labonim. And, and the more you think about it, the more you'll see that the totality of the picture of what happened to us cannot be accounted for by either Av, by himself. Avodim hayinu Mitzrayim. We were slaves. That's a major part of it. Yaakov slaved away for Lavan. Avram never worked for, for anyone in Egypt. Parah was punished. For what, he, for what he wanted to do. Lovin was never punished. He, he was only blessed by, by Jacob's presence. In other words, you'd really need, and so on and so forth, you'd need to, to, to identify all of the elements that each of gave and superimpose them on each other. And the composite picture will give you Masa Ovos. And interestingly, there's one thing that happened both with Avram and Jacob. They both left with, with Rechush Gadol. Avram left with Rechush Gadol, so did Yaakov. Ah, so that's a double input. But isn't it interesting that when we left Egypt, we left with Rechush Gadol twice. The first time on the day that we left, and then a week later, at Kriyas Yamsa. 
So this is really the, the full import of the idea of the Vilna Gaon, that, that, our, that the Masa Ovos for our Egypt experience was a, a team effort, so to speak, both of Avram and of Yaakov. And if that is true, then I believe that we can conclude this part of the discussion by saying the following. Let us go back to the words Arami Ovedavi. Uh, what do those words mean? Well, as we saw, shall we count the ways? It depends who you ask. It could mean anything. Not anything, but it could mean more than one thing. Some people say that it refers to love and trying to destroy Yaakov. Others say it refers to Yaakov himself having a difficult time. And still others refer to it as Avram wandering around and having his own difficulties. And let's ask, if we may, a Balabatisha Shaila. The Torah is very vague on this point. It seems kind of non-committal, non-specific. These three words, Arami, Oved Avi. Who's the Arami? Doesn't say. But why doesn't it say? In every other instance in the Torah, when it talks about someone, it calls them by name. Wouldn't it have saved us all a lot of trouble if the Torah had simply said, instead of Arami, say Lavan. You call him Lavan every other time. Or if it's Yaakov, call him Yaakov. Or if it's Avram, call him Avram. So why do we back away and whoever we're talking about refer to him in this, in this way which could be understood in more than one way? But my uncle Rav Kuperman Zatzal once told me a, a Klal Godol. And of course, as soon as you hear it, it makes perfect sense. The Torah is well capable of specifying what it wants to talk about and who it wants to talk about. If the Torah uses a term that is not specific, it's because the Torah doesn't want to be specific. If the Torah uses a term that can be understood in more than one way, it's in order for it to be understood in more than one way. And in this instance... The Torah says Aramia Vedavi, and it's not specific. But why is it not specific? Because the Vilna Gaon told us that these three words reflect or represent the Masa Avos segment or stage of the whole story. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, who is the Masa Avos for our story in Egypt? Is it Avram? Is it Yaakov? As we know, as we've seen, the answer is yes. It's both. And Lavan's also part of it. And therefore, because Aramia Veda V represents or denotes the Masa Ovo stage, and the Masa Ovo stage itself was a collaborative enterprise of Avram and Yaakov, with Lavan as the, as the, the villain. That's why Aramia Vedavi is stated in a way that can encompass all of them, because altogether they provided the, the Masa Avos. That, I believe, is the, the understanding uh, based on this, um, this section of Vilna Gaon. So, as we've seen, quite a bit to say with regards to um, the opening words, Aramia Vedavi, uh, which I dare say will never look the same again um, as we discuss the, the chat of these words and so on and so forth. 
Moving on a little bit into the Parsha. So, of course, the, the second half of the Parsha is dominated by the Tochacha and the second of the two Tochachas in the Torah. We will yet uh, get there, Mitzvah Shem. But firstly, there's another section which is also about blessings and curses, but it's not yet the Tochacha. It's, it's those things that were said at Har Grizim, at Har Eval, cursed is the one who does this, and cursed is the one who does this, and the implication, blessed is the one who does this, and blessed is the one who does this. And that's in Perik Kafzayin. And let's take a look. Perik uh, Kafzayin. And there are, I think, 11 or 12 of these uh, aurors here. It really goes from, uh, from Pasuk Tesvav, Perik Kafzayin Pasuk Tesvav. Um, and it just keeps going until the end of the Perik, till Pasuk Kafzav. That's a good 11 or so. Sukkim, I guess there's 11 of those aurors. The one that I'd like to focus on is in Pasuk Yudches. Okay, so let's take a look. Perik Kafzayin, Pasuk Yudches. What does it say? Aror Mashge Iver Badarech. Cursed is the one who, who misleads, one could say. The, the blind man on the way, the Amar Kalha Amin. So there's a special curse, of course. These are not the only 11 things that are forbidden in the Torah, but for certain reason, they attract to themselves a special curse at this time. If you, if you lead a blind person the wrong way, that's a special horror. What does this mean? Rashi comments. Mashge Iver, what does it mean to mislead a blind person? Hasuma Badavar. Someone who's blind in the matter. Meaning we're not talking about someone who's physically blind, but rather someone who, who he's, he's going into a situation blind. He doesn't know what's good for him. And you are giving him uh, advice or guidance that is bad for him. Umatsio etzara'a. You're giving him ba- uh, bad advice? That's the blind man in the Pasuk. And of course, once again, we have to ask the simple question. Rashi's perush is a pshat perush. The pshat of the word iver, the simple, the straightforward meaning, is someone who's actually blind. And that's, that's bad enough. And yet, Rashi saw fit to explain on a straightforward level that the word Iver here does not mean someone who's literally blind, but rather someone who is uh, blind in the matter. He doesn't know what's good for him, and you're telling him to do something that's bad for him, and he's none the wiser until he, until he stumbles. Why would Rashi do that? Why would Rashi depart from the literal translation to this other, which seems to be more of a uh, thematic application? Now, of course, we know this is not the first time that Rashi has made a comment like this. There is the much more famous case in Parshas Kedoshim, the negative prohibition. Not to put a stumbling block in front of a blind man. It's a, it's a negative prohibition in the Torah. Parshas Kedoshim. And there too, Rashi also explained that means do not give a person bad advice. He's blind because he doesn't know what's, he doesn't know what the, what's the best uh, direction for him and, you're, and you're, you're misleading him. 
Not a literally a blind person. So really, on both of these occasions, Rashi has explained the word iver non-literally. Now in the earlier case, it's easier to understand why. And to demonstrate how this is, all we need to do is to read the Pasuk, to translate it, and then translate it back. And we'll immediately see why Rashi said what he said. We say, do not put a stumbling block in front of a blind man. That is a very well-known Pasuk, and that is the common translation. There's just one problem. If you would start with the English and translate it into Hebrew, you wouldn't say what the Torah says. If you say, do not put a stumbling block in front of a blind man, to put or to place in Hebrew is lasim. Which means the Pasuk, if it's saying what we, what we think it's saying, should have said, don't place or put a stumbling block in front of a blind man. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say lo tasim. It says, lo titen. Do not give. It's a little bit disconcerting. Because the Torah isn't saying what we're expecting it to say. And maybe we might just not notice that. But Rashi's job is to notice it. And that's why Rashi says that if the, if the verb used is lotitain, do not give. You don't give a stumbling block to a blind man. The prohibition must be about something that you give. Like what? Like a piece of bad advice or any other such thing. Which means that the blind man is not literally blind, but you're giving him something which is not good for him. And that causes him to stumble. That's a very interesting example of, of a pasuk that is so straightforward, we may never realize why Chazal said the things that they did, and why Rashi explains the things the way that he does. All of that, though, is in Parshas Kadoshim. Here, there is no verb. It just says, Aror mashke iver badarich. So why does Rashi explain here that we're also talking about someone who's blind in the matter, but not literally blind? Well, you could say, balabatishly, that the curse belongs to the prohibition. So if that's what it means in the prohibition for various Parshas Kedoshim reasons, so then that's what it means. And the curse it's not going to talk about something else that the Torah never for, for prohibited. So if in Parshas Kedoshim, Lifne Ivil of Sitein Mirshal means uh, someone who's blind in the matter, that you give him a piece of bad advice, if that's what the prohibition is, and that's what the curse is about, then Rashi explains accordingly here, even if there's no compelling evidence in our Pasuk or compelling reason, to say that Iver is not literally blind, but blind in the matter. However, one of the Mephorshe Rashi, called the Be'er Hetev, it's, it's lesser quoted, it's really brief comments, but the Be'er Hetev says no. Even here, if we read closely and carefully, you'll understand why Rashi said what he said. Because it says, Arur mashge Iver Badar, the word shoget, refers to a matter of poor judgment. Shoge, like shogeg or shaga, shgia. It's a mistake in the sense of misreading things. But that means that whatever you did for this blind person, you manipulated their judgment. You caused them to be shoge. But that's a matter of advice, bad advice, not good for them. 
And therefore, even in our Pasuk, says the Be'er Heitev, the, word, the verb mashgeh, shin gimel hey, tells us that we're dealing with giving, giving a person something that is, that is a mistake for them in terms of what is good for them, in terms of judgment. That's a bad piece of advice. So these are some very interesting Rashi. You see, Rashi's not over until Le'enei Kal Yisrael. Every comment of Rashi needs to be contemplated to try and get a sense of why he said what he said. I will uh, uh, just conclude um, this uh, segment here, by referring to a classic comment, which was made by someone who's known as the Rebbe Reb Heschel. He's called the Rebbe Reb Heschel, he came, came before all the Rebbes. He's, he's uh, yet in the 1600s. He is the teacher of Reb Shabza Cohen, the Shach, and also Reb David Halevi, the Taz. I mean, he, he's, he's not called the Rebbe for nothing. He's the Rebbe of those massive uh, halachic uh, authorities and commentators. And we have very little from him, actually, written. A little bit on the tour, there's a volume, but it's... What's famous from him, although it can't be the really express uh, the person himself, it's really just sparks and nuggets, is a sefer called Chanukah Satora. Uh, and, and they're really a collection of very, very interesting uh, uh, comments. He takes us back to Parshas Toldos. Parshas Toldos, where Yaakov is told by Rivka, he's got to, he's got to put the goat skins on and he's got to, uh, he's got to go and get the blessings. And Yaakov says to Rivka at a certain point, or before they get to the goatskin, Perhaps my father will feel me. I mean, Esau and Yaakov are not the same in that respect. And, hope, and, and maybe he will. And he's likely to, because physical contact is, was important to establish in order to be a conduit for blessing. So there's a good chance that he will. And then the game is up. And I will bring on myself a curse instead of a blessing. So maybe it's not worth it. And Rivka's response was, Your curse is on me. So the whole exchange is very interesting because Yaakov says, I'll bring upon myself a curse. How do you know? I mean, it's a very pessimistic expectation, even if it doesn't work out. Okay, maybe you won't succeed at getting the blessings. You think your father's going to curse you? What is the basis of that expectation? And Rivka's response is equally interesting. Because Rivka says, the curse is on me. No, it isn't. Or how do you know? How do you know that the curse is transferable? How can you take a chryas for that? Yitzchak will, if Yitzchak curses Yaakov and Rivka says I accept it well maybe Yitzchak doesn't accept you accepting it maybe it's non-transferable so obviously those psukim need closer attention but the Rebbe Repeshel says why does Yaakov say that um, if things fall through and he finds me out I'll bring upon myself a curse what curse, says the Rebbe, because the Torah itself says, It gives a curse for a person who misleads a blind man. Yitzhak is blind, and here I am, taking advantage of him. And then if he, the whole thing is he's found out, and, that's, and that would be the end of it. There's a curse waiting for me. He's not expecting Yitzhak to curse him. The Torah is going to curse him. Yitzhak is a blind man. 
It's the, says the Rebbe. So what does Rivka say? You don't have to worry. That curse will be on me. Why? Because, says Rivka, doesn't refer to misleading someone who's literally blind. It refers to giving someone a bad piece of advice. Here I am giving you advice to go and get the brachas. If it backfires, then that means that I will have given you a bad piece of advice unbeknownst to you. You're the blind man, and I will be the one who misled you. That's where the curse will be on me. So it's a very interesting comment on that, uh, that part of their conversation. If we move further into the well, into the into the tochacha, which is really the more expanded blessings and blessings and curses, and I just like to to refer to a parshanut point, which is very interesting. Again, it's easy to get to, to get used to certain things and not notice things. The when does the tochacha begin? Is in perik kafches. And the first, although the Tochacha is dominated, you could say, by the, by the dire predictions of things go wrong. But the first 14 verses are actually the positive promises for if things go right. And hopefully they will. And that, that is always, uh, always good to, to, to think in that way. And basically, we could summarize the first 14 verses of Perik Kavches by saying that if you, if you do well and keep all the mitzvahs, so then you will get uh, all, all the brachas. But what's interesting is that the blessings are predicated on the mitzvahs. And that's, that is a, an axiom of this whole concept. If you keep the mitzvahs, then these brachas will. But the Torah refers to this condition no less than three times over the course of these 14 verses. What do I mean by that? Have a look at verse 2. Pasuk base. It says, All of these brachas will come and they will pursue you. When and if you listen to Hashem's voice. Meaning, you'll get the brachas if you listen to Hashem's voice and keep the mitzvahs. Okay, so we, we, it's, it's been clearly stated. These blessings are predicated on keeping the mitzvahs. But let's move forward to Pasuk Tess. Yikimcha Hashem, lo la'am kadosh, Hashem will, will raise you up to him as a holy nation, kashen ishbalach, ki sishmor es mitzvos, Hashem elokecha velachta bedrochav. If and when you keep the mitzvahs. So the, the condition has been restated, and I'm not sure why, because it was already stated in verse 2. I understand that these blessings are based on keeping the mitzvahs. Why does that need to be repeated seven verses later in the very same section? And what's worse, it happens again. It happens a third time. Pasukid Gimel, verse 13. To read, Words that we will say on Rosh Hashanah. You'll be only on top, not below. If you listen to the mitzvahs. So you have the same condition within the space of 14 verses, or less in fact, 12 verses there, stated once, twice, and a third time. Why? And this question is discussed by the Akedas Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak Arama, one of the late uh, Spanish Rishonim. And he says, actually, if you look a little closer, you will see that the way the Jewish people are, de- are described in terms of doing the right thing 
It shifts between these three times. Let's look again. The end of Pasuk Beis says, Ki tishma bekol Hashem alokecha. If you heed Hashem's voice, Ki tishma bekol Hashem alokecha. How does Pasuk Tess end? Ki tishmor es mitzvah Hashem alokecha. If you guard the mitzvahs. So we've gone from Ki tishma to Ki tishmor. And then what's left? The end of Pasuk Yud Gimel, which says, Ki tishma al mitzvah Hashem alokecha, shenuch mitzav chayom, lishmor velaasos. So first you have tishma, then tishmor, and then tishma, lishmor velaasos. What is the difference between those three terms? They sound so similar to each other, but obviously they're not exactly the same. Says Yakedas Yitzchak. Really, there are three concepts here. Because a person's relationship with mitzvahs can exist on three levels. Number one, practical. To do the mitzvahs. It's possible to do the mitzvahs, and well, we should. But that's it. Torah says, that's what I do. But it's possible to do the mitzvahs and leave it at that without ever pondering and thinking what is behind the mitzvah, without trying to absorb some type of message or idea or value or ideal or concept from the mitzvah. And what difference does it make? Well, firstly, you understand better. But then moreover, if you've absorbed the concept of the mitzvah, it may actually change the way that you do other things, even if they're not that actual mitzvah. If you have heard the message from within this mitzvah, it could inform and elevate your behavior generally as per that message. Says the Akedas Yitzchak, these are the three levels. Pasuk Bey said, Ki tishma, if you heed the mitzvahs, meaning you do the mitzvahs, that's already grounds for blessing. But the second time Pasuk Tes is not just talking about heeding the mitzvahs. Ki tishmor, if you guard them, if you keep them, if you think about them, try and internalize them. And that's already another level. And what is the third level? That means that you heed the mitzvahs with a view to absorbing their message and to do other things based on those values. There's so many applications of, of an idea from within a mitzvah. It can change the way that you do many things. I mentioned if we've uh, been very in, in the parshanut this evening, I think we've earned ourselves a Hasidish avort. We know so we're headed for uh, Simchas Torah, and Simchas Torah is a, we make a we make a feast. Why? Because we finish the Torah. It's based on the Medrash and Shira Shirim, the idea of making a feast when you make a siyum. Osim suuda le Gemara shel Torah. When you finish the Torah, or you finish a, a significant work in the Torah, so you make a suuda, you make a siyum. That's a Medrash in Shira Shirim. Why do you make a feast? when you finish a, a work of Torah, 
Well, this, the Balabatisha answer, the simple answer is to celebrate. And it's, indeed, it's worth celebrating. But Rav Shimon Shalom of Amshinov, the great Amshinov Rebbe, says, you know why you make a feast? You have a feast when you finish learning a work of Torah. It's to see if the way that you conduct yourself at a feast has changed now that you've learned another work of Torah. It's almost like a field test for your learning. You learn more Torah. But that should change. It should change the way that you, that, that, that you act, even in something like eating. You should be able to tell. That's a person who's learned Torah. Look at how they eat and look at how, that, how considerate they are and so on and so forth. Or to put it slightly differently, what the Rebbe is saying is the proof of the learning is in the eating. And that's why we make a su'uda when we finish a Torah to see what does your su'uda look like now? Have you, you've, been, you've been learning, you've been doing the mitzvahs, but have you been guarding the mitzvahs? And have they then led you to then do other things uh, representing those values? So that's the classic uh, th- three-tiered progression of the Akedas Yitzchak, uh, as expressed by the, the brachas in this, this opening section of the, of the Tochacha. But there is... Of course, the many, many verses about the Tochacha itself. And I think it's fair to say, again, let us generalize. It's, it's okay to generalize because what we're about to say is generally true. That uh, the, the discourse, shall we say, of the Tochacha is sin begets punishment. I mean, that, that, that is a, basically a summary of, of all of the tochacha. If you do the following wrong things, the following punishments will come. That's what the tochacha is. And although that sounds very simple and straightforward, and it is, I mention it because there seems to be one departure within the tochacha, and that is in Perik Kafches, Pasuk Samach Dalet. Perik Kafches, Pasuk Samach Dalet. It's a long Perik, this uh, tochacha, and of course it's all read together. <clears throat> what does it say? Pasuk Samatal. Vehefitzcha Hashem Bechol Ha'amim. Hashem will scatter you among all the nations. From one end of the, of, the, of the land, of the world, to the rest, to the other. Ve'ovadeta sham Elohim achirim asher loyodata atava avosecha etzva'aven. And you will serve idols there, other gods, or as Rashi says, Others gods, but it's talking about Avodazara. Vaavadatasham Elohim Achirim. Very important here to pronounce it Elohim, because it's not referring to Hashem. We only say Elohim when we're referring to Hashem. Some people they they they, they think they're being from by by translating this or or, or pronouncing it as Elohim, a word like this. It's apikorsus. You're giving it the deity uh, status. This is Elohim because it doesn't work. And it's, uh, doesn't, it doesn't have any religious significance. It's Avodah But the problem is, we're in a punishment verse. Why is it then talking about further sins? It, it seems to have broken from the pattern of sin leads to punishment. It sounds here like punishment will lead to sin. And indeed, we should know that Unculus, once again, translates when it says that you, 
It says, I'll just read the words in, in the Unklis and then, You will serve people who serve idols. Again, that's a, that is a major statement on Unkelis's behalf. He's, he is, it's a translation. But Unkelis is saying the translation here is not that you'll serve the idols, you'll be put to work serving the people that serve idols. And Rashi cites Unkelis. And one of the reasons why is because context here. We're in a verse of punishment. So the punishment is not to sin again. The punishment is that you'll be then for, enlisted in the service of people that serve idols. It's a very, very degrading and lowly thing. That's Unkelis's response. However, the Abarbanel says differently. The Abarbanel says that when the Pasuk says, you'll serve idols, it means as part of the punishment. Not that you will choose to become idolaters. You will have no choice. It could reach a stage where you will be forced to serve idols. Namely, if, if, if it's forced upon you. And that's why it refers to them as Elohim Achrim Ashelo Yadata, that you don't know, in other words, you don't recognize. We're not saying that you'll actually recognize these, these as deities, but you will have no choice in the matter. That's part of the punishment. That is how dire things might get. And not only does the Abarbanel explain this way, but so does the Akedas Yitzhak. And what are they describing? They're basically describing their own time. Both the Abarbanel and the Akedas Yitzhak, who were contemporaries with each other and also uh, compatriots with each other, they both lived in Spain and they were both thrown out of Spain during a time when this Pasuk was fulfilled in the way that they're explaining it, that people, as, as uh, the, the, the goal has got so difficult that, it, that in order to survive there, people, there, there was this pressure to serve idolatry. But says, uh, says the Akedah Yitzchak, but what's the punishment? Because what does the next Pasuk say? Pasuk Samechei, Uvagoyim ahem no tagia, you'll have no nachas there. What's the connection between these two things? It means even as you'll be forced to, to, to do all those things and to subscribe to, to those religions, it won't help you. It's not going to change anything. And that, of course, as we know, was also a description of their time. Part of the, of the catastrophe of that whole time is not only was it forced upon them, but it didn't help them. It then left them subject to inquisition and, and further suspicion and then... And, and, so that is a very different understanding of this Pasuk, and it's, they are literally seeing the Tochacha happening in front of them in the, in the late uh, 15th century in Spain. But if possible, and of course, as we always try to do, and it's not incorrect to do, is there any way to end on a positive note here? In fact, there is. Because Pasuk Samaches says, when I say a positive note, a positive note and a pleasant note are not always the same. Because sometimes when we go for what's pleasant, that's a disaster. But the Pasuk Samachay says, you, you won't be settled there. There won't be a resting place for your foot. That is a very evocative phrase. We immediately associate it with a much earlier Manoach Lekafraglo. 
namely the dove that was sent out from Tevas Noah. He sends out the dove and it, wasn't, it didn't find any resting place. And there's a very interesting comment of the Medrash Bracious Rabbah. And that is, because we think of this bird, and the bird is circling round, doesn't find anywhere to rest, and we say, oh, that's a, that's a shame for that bird. But actually the Medrash says, it's a blessing. Why? Because if it did find a resting place, it would never have come back. Now, in the end, the goal is we don't want the bird to come back because you want to know if the land is dry. But the point is, if one could say, I wouldn't exactly say Masa Ovos because it's a bird in the time of Noah, but it's a concept in Chumash Bereshis. And what does it tell us? That sometimes if you don't find Manoach Lekafra Glecha, it's a blessing. It might not always be so comfortable, but that's exactly the point. Because if you got too comfortable, so then maybe you'd stay and you'd never come back. But the goal of Golos is not to stay. It's to do whatever needs to be done there and yes, to come back. And therefore, in a sense, say the Mepharshim, this late, late verse in the Tochacha, which says, there's a, there's a, uh, an element of blessing here. You'll never be able to fully, fully establish yourself there. And that is good news because that's not where you're meant to be permanently. And when the time comes, whenever that time is, you need to be ready to leave. And in order to facilitate that, your, your, your feet are never fully allowed to rest on the ground in a way that would lead. And this, this can mean so many different things in different times, in different places, including our own times uh, for the various places. But either way, when we think of lo we should look upon that with optimism. Because the only place where the Jewish people should, yes, have Manoach Lekafrak Leim is in Eretz Yisrael, and that is a place that we hope uh, that all Jews return to, which should come soon, with the Geula Shalema, Be Meheir Amen. Amen. wish you all a good evening, a wonderful week ahead. <laughs>